Good morning. I'm glad that you chose to worship with us today. I'm Pastor Jeff Dadisman, and, and this worship broadcast is from St. John's United Methodist Church here in Davenport, Iowa. Today uh, concludes our uh, beginning of the year series, uh, Celebrating the Light of Christ, the opening stories of the gospel where Jesus and his mission were introduced. And I just want to thank you again for joining us for worship. from John 2, verses 1 to 11. On the third day, a wedding took place in, at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. And then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the ba banquet tasted the wine that had been turned into, or the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. And then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine, after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Canaan of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Each of the Gospels has their way of, of introducing Jesus to the reader, and the Gospel of John uh, begins here a little differently. Matthew and Luke have the birth story of Jesus, the, the Christmas story. Mark uh, just kind of dives right into the ministry of Jesus. John is also an eyewitness, one of the disciples was there with Jesus. And, and he, in, in the, the writing of this gospel, includes uh, seven miracles that Jesus performed um, in, in his mission and ministry. And John wants us to see these miracles as, as signs, specifically revealing the divine nature of our Lord and Savior. So here are the seven signs, and, and today's scripture is the first of these signs. Uh, John tells the different accounts as you go through the gospel. First, 
Jesus turns water into wine, and then uh, Jesus heals uh, a, a Roman official's son, and then He healed an invalid at the pool of Bethesda. Then He fed the 5,000 with a, a couple loaves of bread and a few fish. Jesus walked on the water. Jesus gave sight to a blind man. And then finally, uh, John tells of, of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. These are the seven signs that John gives us. And, and, and the question is, is asked, why, why tell of these miracles and why just these seven? And why did Jesus do them? In one, the healing of the blind man, there, there was some scuttle going on around that uh, day. Um, the question seemed to be uh, a popular one, you know, who, who sinned to cause this punishment, to cause this disability? And, the, and those watching had been saying, you know, was it this man's parents? Uh, were the parents guilty of some hidden sin and then the son is born blind? Or was the, the child himself guilty of some wrongdoing and, and, and the physical ailment was a symbol of God's judgment. And Jesus kind of speaks into that moment and said, neither. Uh, this man was born blind so that God's glory could be seen today. For this moment, Jesus kind of reinterprets some of uh, what was uh, properly assumed to be true in his time. And John's gospel then shares these seven signs, and a sign is, is like a signpost. Uh, a signpost is really not your destination, it's pointing you towards something else, pointing beyond itself. And, and so we can see these miracles, uh, they're, they're special and they're important, but the miracles that John lists are pointing beyond to, to a, a reality deeper than just the event, these miracles John would have us see are connected to the divinity of Christ, the person of Jesus. Seven signs, seven miracles, seven is a number of completeness, wholeness. Seven is also the number of perfection. And throughout this gospel, um, John, who is Jewish, reveals a little bit of his love of numbers, and, and, and there is that sense of kind of playing with uh, layers of, of meaning. And so that's kind of where we're going to go today. John has Jesus going to a wedding, and often um, the, there is that dichotomy within our own spiritual journey. Do we, do we engage? Do we participate in, in all that's going on around us? Do we pull back? Does, does God somehow want us to be set apart and, and maybe not quite always involved in, in things around us, and yet Jesus is very much participating in, in the, the life of the community, the, this joyful celebration, and He and the disciples receive an invitation, and they all get to go. Now, 13 guys would be quite a drain on the uh, refreshments and the food table, um, but they're welcomed, and they go to participate. They go to uh, show their support for this family. And then all of a sudden, um, they, they kind of get pulled into a crisis. So John, as he, he builds this story, I, I want you to catch the, the opening phrase, on the third day. Where else in John's gospel do you hear those words? At the end, right? On the third day, Mary 
went to the tomb. On the third day, Jesus was resurrected. On the third day is what we celebrate on Easter. So the third day is a loaded phrase, and yet John's gospel has it here in chapter 2. And so even in chapter 2, John is saying, it's coming, right? This little sign is causing us, you know, if you've, if, as you're reading the gospel, if you've read it and you come back and you read it again, you, you catch things the second time around and, and, and the, re, the repetition sets it up. And maybe we notice this in a little different way. But on the third day, John wants you to, to make that leap. John wants you to, to make that connection. Something's about to happen. The first few words of this miracle account point to the ultimate sign, the resurrection of Christ. The the resurrection of Lazarus, one of the seven signs, also points to the resurrection of Christ. So let's go back to the the context here in chapter 2 a little bit. There's a crisis, and it helps to know a little bit of the culture, what what else is going on in this village. Uh, Weddings for the Jewish people was, uh, was a, an Old Testament image as they thought about heaven. They pictured heaven as a, a wedding banquet. That's a piece of the Jewish culture that we, we, we think more pearly gates and streets of gold. Um, there's also the idea that Abraham's bosom, it's a gathering of, of the faithful as they die. They go to the first faithful the person of Abraham, and he's kind of the central person in that imagination of of what's next, what's in the afterlife, what's in the future life. But the Jews had a a more, I I would say the, the image of the wedding was probably the dominant metaphor, because that's the single biggest celebration in any Jewish village. The family would focus all their resources, all of their savings towards getting ready for that big event. If you had a son or a daughter or several, uh, your savings account was getting ready for that wedding banquet, not saving for college. They didn't have college back then. Their savings and their investment as parents was uh, we have a wedding if there's a child, there's a wedding coming, and that was the big deal. And, and the whole town was invited. And when they thought of the next life, that's what they imagined it was going to be like in the presence of God. One great big wedding banquet. It's a theme that John uses in Revelation as he, he's unfolding that vision. What's, thing, what's it going to be like at the end of time? It's going to be a wedding banquet. That's John, the writer of this gospel and the writer of Revelation. The New Testament would would have us know that marriage is not just a human institution, that the weddings that we participate here on earth point to a future celebration. Uh, the, the, The Apostle Paul talks about there's a mystery here. It's not just what we do on earth. The union of Christ and His church is what it points to. Every time a couple is married there is that Scripture reference of, of the Apostle Paul saying that um, this is a now event, but it's a, the mystery connects us with what's coming 
as well. The institution of marriage is meant to foreshadow the coming celebration in heaven where, where the glory of God is poured out in full. And I think God is, God's intent within marriage is that the glory of God might be shown through our relationships here on earth, that, that our marriages would be witnesses to that union with Christ in the age to come. So Jesus and his disciples are in this party. The wedding has happened, the celebration is underway, the feast is happening, and all of a sudden the wine runs out in the back room, uh, begins to stir, and, and it's the most embarrassing moment, the most embarrassing thing that could happen to a, a young couple as they start their journey through life. Remember, this is the, the high point for the village, maybe for the year, and, and this week of celebration is going to be talked about for a long time. This is so bad. You know, that this is what's going to be talked about. And Mary ends up in the middle of this crisis. And Jesus turns the water into wine. Now, it's kind of interesting if you think about our Methodist history. The Methodist church in the early 1900s landed on the side of prohibition. And that's kind of how grape juice was invented. Mr. Welch was a Methodist. And Mr. Welch invented something at just the right time and marketed it to all the Methodists, and he did okay, right? Um, and, and so the, the tradition of our church is, you know, we're kind of against um, drinking in excess and all of that, and, but the Bible's not totally against the consumption of wine. I do want to put that out there. Because sometimes I'll get that as a Methodist preacher, you know, what do you do with that miracle? And like Jesus seemed to really enjoy himself. <laughs> Wine is mentioned about 270 times in the Bible, and, and half of those references are warnings, don't imbibe too much. Uh, beware of drunkenness, beware of excess. But the other half of those references are wine is a symbol of the joy of life. Take some. That's the invitation. Just be careful. So, so wine is a, a metaphor, and it's got a little more underneath it that that's a sign of God's blessing. I mean, Solomon several times says, what, what else? I mean, he's kind of having a bad day when he says, what else is there to do but eat, drink, and be merry? For someday we will die. But, but that receiving of the wine, the fruit of the vine, goes with the joy of life. So what did Mary think Jesus might do when she called him in? Uh, she's caught in the moment. She's there among the servants, and, and she connects Jesus to the crisis, and then she just kind of puts it in his lap, and she turns to them and says, what, whatever he says, just do it, hoping he'll do something. So why does John tell all of the details that come next? I, th I think it just, Gail did a wonderful job reading but in our hearing of this account, we, we just hear it and, and we go right on. Uh, water turns to wine, and, but, but John packs some layers. We're going to go back to that word. There's layers of, of interesting detail here that, that John wants the reader to catch. He, he says the, the jars were stone jars, not pottery, not clay. Talks about how much they hold and the details of their purpose and the Jewish readers probably got this, but most of us are, are 20 centuries removed. 
And I would like you to know a little bit of the culture and the connection and what is John giving us. And so there's a comparison here between the emptiness. He says these are ceremonial washing waters contained in the, the jars that are now empty. And maybe John is saying, let's compare the emptiness of the ritual itself with these empty jars. The jars are used for ceremonial washing. Why say that they were stone? Is it an attempt to connect with the prophet Ezekiel in the Old Testament where, where God said through the prophet, uh, you have hearts of stone and I'm going to give you a heart of faith. Ezekiel is pulled into the story. Jesus says, fill them to the brim. Why would John use that phrase? And maybe he wants, John wants us to know that, that when Jesus fills your life, and when Jesus replaces your heart of stone, that you will overflow with His love and mercy and grace, His Holy Spirit. At the end of His ministry, at the end of His life, at the end of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit is filled, poured out to overflowing in the upper room. John, John's connecting all these things. John's gospel is written way down the line after all the other gospels, and, and there's a pretty good foundation. Uh, we know the story. We know the, the events. We, we know the significance of the, the death and resurrection of Christ. And so John is, is kind of stepping up to another level, and, and then he stuffs in all these little details. The size of the water jars, 20 to 30 gallons. Well, I mean, that seems like a wasted detail, doesn't it? But it points to something. 20 to 30 gallons is more than any one person would need, and, and John pictures Jesus as the master of abundance. Uh, this miracle is going to overflow as a part of this couple's need. And then John adds this, this little commentary on the normal wedding practice strategy of the day, because it's always about the bottom line, right? How can we save a little bit here and save a little bit there? This feast could last for a week, and who can afford wine for a week? And so he says that, you know, everybody serves their best wine first, and when all have drunken freely and you can't really taste anything anymore, they, they send back to the back room and bring out the cheap wine. John is having fun with us, having fun with this culture, it's kind of a poke in the eye for everybody who ever did that, and they probably did. So everybody in the village gets a little tweak. Every reader in every synagogue in every age to follow gets a little tweak because it's not just the Dutch that are tight, is it? Davenport, we have a little bit of that layer among us, right? You, you try to make things go a little further. So, so at this wedding, um, it's like John is saying, when, when you choose to come to Christ, you end up with a life that overflows with joy, hope, and abundance. John is, has stacked all kinds of layers of meaning within this simple account. Sometimes in our, our modern minds, we, we still question, you know, how, how do miracles really happen? What, what role does a supernatural still have in a, a story of faith? And what do we do with this component? C.S. Lewis is a, a British thinker that um, 
Partway through life, he went from an atheist, a skeptic, a denier of the faith to somebody that that kind of dove in and said, I'm going to check it all out and prove that it's wrong. And he came to faith. And C.S. Lewis, in some of his writings, took this simple story and said, so how did Jesus turn water into wine? Megan showed us a shortcut. Um, You can make it look the right color. Um, but we didn't taste it. Okay, you did. Does it, did it taste good? Tastes great. Okay. There's a little bit after worship for those that are here. That wouldn't work, though, because she's already tasted it. Okay. So C.S. Lewis is, is writing that, um, you know, we, we're fascinated by that momentary switch, the water in all of these huge pitchers, the, the water turns to wine, and how can that be, and how did that happen? And, and he says, God does that same miracle every summer. As the grapevines draw moisture from the ground, the rain falls, the moisture is drawn up into the vine, and it goes into the branches, and it ends up in the grapes, and the little green pellet swells and turns purple, and it's a miracle. You know, at the beginning of the growing season, it's just water. At the end of the growing season, the water has disappeared, and now it's a grape. And there's a process to harvest the grapes and process, and it becomes wine. I remember um, having a little fun with this in my, uh, one of my places where we had a garden, and um, we would go to a farmer, and we would get some manure and apply it to our garden, and I had strawberries. And at the end of the season, I would take some strawberry jam to that farmer and say, I just want to thank you for your manure. Look what God did with your, your goat doo-doo. Um, and and it's, you, you question, you know, what do you mean? You know, it's just strawberry jam. All we added was sugar. But God took manure, and through the process of development, it became something really sweet. Is that a miracle? It took a long time. The grapes, the vine, sucks up the water, and it takes a long time. And C.S. Lewis just asked the question, is it miraculous, or is it just we assume it'll just keep happening every year? Something to consider. John gives the account of this first sign. Jesus did it in public. Not everybody saw it. It was seen by some It was kind of in the back room as word spread and the whispers went about. The secret was probably told. But it was an unforgettable sign to those who did see it. It was an unforgettable witness to those in the back room as the crisis unfolded, as as Mary said, Jesus, do something. You know, Jesus says, "But but it's not my time. The hour has not yet come. John, again, referencing later in the gospel, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane says, the hour is now upon us. The hour has come. My time has come. John continuing to bridge back and forth between the beginning of the gospel and the end of the gospel. In the crisis of the wine, the family, those who see, the stewards that are hoping it all turns out good are, are just 
inside they're screaming, our reputation is ruined. Who could have planned so poorly? And then Jesus gives some directions, and they're incredulous, like, what good is that going to do? These are empty jars. What good is the water going to do? And, and yet um, somebody says, just do it, and they obey, and they're whispering, they're muttering as they go back and forth. And then there's this incredible moment where he said, take a, a dipper out to the chief steward, and he tastes, and he pulls the groom up, and he makes the announcement, you've saved the best wine for last. Incredible. And everybody in the back is just like, how could this be? It was a sign that the kingdom of God was breaking into their time. The Son of Man was also the Son of God. John wants us to get that. And, he, and seven times he sets up seven miracles, seven signposts, all pointing beyond themselves to a truth that he hopes we'll catch. John's gospel invites us to several things today, to trust in Christ, to do what Jesus says. If we do, we have the chance to enjoy life above and beyond what we might accomplish just on our own. If we accept the sign that John gives us and, and we see this miracle pointing to the divinity of Christ, and if Jesus was God, that would have some implications for our lives, for our day, that if, if Jesus was Lord back then, Jesus is still Lord now. And Jesus wants to speak into your life and into mine. He wants to speak into our day, into our time, in the midst of our crisis, in the midst of our world's crisis. And if Jesus was God, He has something to say to us in our day as well. Will you pray with me? John invites us to, to look to Jesus, to notice details, small things, all things that would back up John's premise that Jesus was more than just a man, that Jesus was God in the flesh. And as we uh, consider that truth and, and look to what that would mean for us, God, you, you would invite us to open ourselves, to submit ourselves to you so that you might speak into our situation and our circumstance. You care about the little things, not just the big things. That, that Sometimes we keep you at arm's length, believing that, that we have to handle the little things, and yet you invite us to trust in the small steps to help us get ready for the bigger challenges. You really don't say, figure out the little things and come back when it's a little more important. You, you invite us to trust you each day, every day, all along the way. Help us to do that as best as we can as your followers. Amen. I would just commend you to the grace of our God and to the mercy of our Lord as you go into this new week.